Promo Kitchen is a nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. If you want to get more involved, visit us on the web at promokitchen.org. This episode of the Promo Kitchen podcast has been generously supported by Sanmar. Outfitting teams, businesses, and communities for more than 40 years, Sanmar is an award-winning supplier of blank apparel, bags, caps, and accessories. Family-owned and operated, Sanmar is based in Seattle, with eight distribution centers around the country to quickly serve customers with the industry's deepest inventory. You can learn more at sanmar.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. We are a community-inspired conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the $20 billion promotional products business. My name is Mark Graham, co-founder of CommonSkew, and I'm joined today by Bill Petrie, founder and CEO of Brandivate. I am very excited to say that this is Bill's first time in the co-host chair, so be prepared for a great episode. Today's guest is well known for his technical savvy, social media wit, and outsized ambition. He is also someone who has made enormous waves in the promotional products industry for over 20 years. We are so fortunate to have Dale Denham on the program with us today. Let me say a few words about Dale before we begin. Dale Denham is a CIO for Geiger and is responsible for all e-commerce and IT functions. Dale was named to Computer World's Premier 100 IT Leaders list for 2015 for his technology leadership and innovative approach to business challenges. Dale was recently elected to a four-year term on the PPAI Board of Directors and is the first CIO to ever serve on the PPAI Board. A graduate from the University of South Florida, Dale was among the first 10 people certified as a Master Advertising Specialist Plus by PPAI, recognized by ASI Counselor Magazine as one of 40 under 40, and was named one of Corporate Logo's most influential people. Dale also joined Promo Kitchen as a chef in January 2015. When Dale isn't saving the world from bad technology, he's at home in Tampa with his wife, Kim, and four energetic kids. Dale, welcome to the program, sir. Thanks very much. And I love a couple of things you said. I, you know, Some of that, obviously, was things you've seen before, but I have never heard myself as described as outsized ambitions. I think that is a perfect phrase. I'm going to put that on my LinkedIn profile, I think. <laughs> there awesome. you, you can quote me on it. But I tell you, from an outside perspective, that's certainly how I see it. So, Dale, why don't we explore the origins of that outsized ambition? And why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into this crazy industry in the first place? Like everyone else, I think I stumbled into it. In college, I was going to school full-time and needed a job. and took a job in sales selling catalogs to distributors for a company called Impact. So we would sell the advertising to suppliers, and then we would put the distributor's logo on the front of the catalog, like the Sage catalogs or the ASI catalogs, and then the distributor would hand that catalog out and sell the items, the promotional items, out of that catalog. It was a great business, and I was there several years, but one of the things that kind of launched the rest of the career in the industry was they had technology problems, and I could see the issues with technology in the industry, and I just said, well, I can take my business and sales background along with my love for technology and do something. So it was a job in college that got me started in this industry. And then after Impact, you ended up working with ASI for many years. How did that start? I know there was a really fun story that you shared when we were on the podcast with Norman Cohn, chairman of ASI. 
and you were talking about how he had courted you to join ASI and that was a long courtship and ultimately you relented and then you joined. Can you tell us a little bit about the time that you spent at ASI over the last 10 years or so? Sure. So I joined ASI in 2000 and when I had left Impact, the last place I thought I would end up working was ASI. While I was at Impact, I thought they were a horrible company, horrible people, and so that's where Norman and I had that little sidebar before. It was very interesting where I learned that sometimes what you believe and what the truth is are, are two different things. And I really had a great 10 years at ASI. spent uh, about two years as president of a division called ASI Transact, and that business was created primarily to try to eliminate the order friction between distributors and suppliers both to create an order management system, but also to take data from a distributor's order entry system, even if it wasn't an ASI system, and move it into the supplier system. That was a very big challenge, and, and I continued to run that, but there was the growth of e-commerce at that time and technology challenges within ASI, and I was promoted to vice president of technology in addition to being president of ASI Transact in 2002. And I began to focus my efforts on their internal technologies CRMs, ERP, general infrastructure, all of that. And then very quickly after that, became senior vice president of ASI in 2003 for several different things, including running their catalog division and launching online advertising products and having all of the ESP data team reporting into me and the product management. I, I was on the team or led the team that built ESP online. Before there was ESP Web, there was ESP Online, and before ESP Online, there was ESP DVD, and converting thousands of DVD users to online users and making them happy was a fun challenge, and uh, just a great 10 years of experience at ASI. I met so many good people, both within the organization, but also managed to maintain my relationships with people outside of ASI, because there's an interesting dynamic that happens when you work for ASI. You're treated very differently by people who are affiliated or, or excited by the nonprofit status of PPAI. And it was a really interesting challenge for me to balance them both. I enjoyed the relationships and still do very much. So I was glad that I was able to work through it. But that was probably one of the hardest things about working ASI was having friends that were unsure of what they could share with me and what they could talk about with me. But a great 10 years of my life. Why, Dale, do you think that there is this paranoia and concern about sharing information with ASI. I mean, we've heard that a lot in the industry, and I'm trying to wrap my head around why that is. If you go way back, well, there's a history for any company of taking good ideas and making them better. Microsoft does it. Google does it. Anybody in the world does it. And ASI was very good at seeing ideas and making them better yeah. and using their strengths and connections. And so even when I was at Impact, there were things that I hated that would come out and we would hold back as long as we could because with ASI's smarts and dollars, they could make things happen that the smaller companies couldn't. In general, I think it's just natural competition. I don't think that there's anything that ASI necessarily does or did that was outside the normal realm of business. You can argue about a specific issue here or there and say, well, this was inappropriate, that was inappropriate, but that's a small piece of the overall puzzle it's competition. You don't want your competitors to copy you and make it better and use their strengths, and that's what they do, and they're very good at it. That's one of the things they do that they're very good at. They also innovate on their own many times, too. 
That's real interesting stuff. Dale, I kind of want to shift a little bit and focus on right now your, your time at Geiger. You know, you really have a non-traditional background for a stereotypical CIO. You have sales and marketing background. How has that helped you in your role as a driver of technology, not only in Geiger, but really in the industry? Well, I'm very fortunate because of that weird mix of sales, marketing, technology operations, but in particular the sales, marketing, and technology. Today, the business world is completely tied in with technology. You can almost across the board say that you can't be growing a business in some way without technology, even if it's just your cell phone, which is still technology, or your phone is still technology. But more and more, the challenges we face as business are intertwined with technology challenges. And when you properly know what IT and technology choices to make or might make, and know intuitively which ones are less likely to pay off, you set yourself up so much better for a chance of growth and success. So that's number one. It is just kind of having the general wisdom. And that doesn't mean you're always right. But you know more or less some of the things that would waste your time if you just knew sales and marketing or if you just knew technology. And it's, in fact, the idea that I've had to manage sales forces and had the opportunity to lead businesses and sales forces where when you run the sales force, you understand how technology can get in your way, and how if you tell people to do it a certain way, and they need to do it another way, that you impede their progress. And so having been on both sides of the fence, and in most cases managing both sides of the fence, it's enabled me to make better decisions in technology that help the sales and marketing people that I work with, even when I'm not in charge of sales and marketing. Mm -hmm. And by nature, the fact this industry is full of sales and marketing people and my relationships are with them. By natural osmosis, I pick up good ideas from them and new ways of doing things to help them. So when we develop products to solve problems, we use that knowledge of personal experience in this industry, personal experience of leading sales and marketing, and personal experience in technology, and combine them to make the best compromises because there's almost always a bit of a compromise. Yeah, I know. I think you make a great point about being able to relate you know, from communication perspective, I think that's fantastic. You know, when I think about your role in Geiger, and obviously technology shifting every minute, it seems, Geiger has a wide range of salespeople, a huge company with a lot of uh, salespeople with diverse backgrounds. Because of that wide range, you're going to have groups that obviously are going to embrace new technology, and you're going to have groups that are a little more resistant. How, besides communication, can you bring that group along and make them feel comfortable that this is a way to help them grow their business? Well, it's tough to answer that question because you said besides communication. I at least need to just reiterate that it really can't happen without good communication. So a year and a half ago, Gene and I started telegraphing to the sales force, maybe it was two years ago now, big changes that needed to be made and how they were prepared to deal with customers. So the communication is doing it early and getting people ready for the change. And as the world is shifting to people wanting to do more business online, helping them there, to answer your question more directly, other than communication, it does really boil down to having good insights so that when you're delivering technology, people want to use it, especially in this industry and especially with salespeople. If you have a piece of technology 
and you have to force people to use it, it's unlikely that that's going to end up driving good success. There are occasions, especially if you're dealing with a new ERP system or something. So the number one goal has to be growing revenue and profits and such in almost every long-term company. And to do that, you need motivated people. And to have motivated people, they have to want to do their jobs. And if you're giving people a new piece of technology and they want to use it, it's much more successful. So I guess the short answer is build really cool and very useful things. And the reason I say both, cool and useful, is cool gets people excited. But if it's just cool, that's no good. Useful is, okay, now that we have their attention because it is cool, but that actually drives value. So it's building cool and useful things that people want to use. I love it. Dale, on the, on that note, do you have any advice for owners of companies or CIOs within the industry that are getting pushback from more tenured members of their team when it comes to implementing and practicing new technology? Or more specifically, what would you say to a salesperson that has been selling the same way and very successfully at that for, let's say, 20 plus years in a more traditional, non-technologically powered setting. How do you convince that person that the times have changed and that they need to start practicing some of these new standards? Well, I guess I'll take a slight different approach. I'm not sure that I would try to convince somebody because there's probably a handful that probably shouldn't change yep. and are very effective at what they're doing. There are times where if you give somebody technology and they're really not good at it, it'll actually hamper their relationship. So assuming we're not talking about those people, and that way if anybody's listening to this podcast, although there's a pretty good chance if they're listening to a podcast, they're somewhat technologically savvy. But if we look at the people that could grasp and be effective at it, the answer is there has to be some internal motivation. I cannot create that internal motivation. If they want to grow their sales, if they are seeing an opportunity, they will adopt those tools. So I would say to them, how are you growing your sales today? Are you growing at 10%? Are you growing at 20%? What would you like to do more of? And just like in a typical sales call, we'd understand the motivations of each person. It's really hard to answer that as a blanket, but the number one thing I would say is most people in our industry are, are aware of the need to do it today because their customers are sending links to online distributors and saying, I need you to find me these items. So more and more salespeople are getting links to their customers, their competitors' websites, and that's driving them to think, I need to be different. And if you look at internal back office operations, it's a lot more difficult question to answer because especially in this industry, we don't like to invest in back office. We are a sales and marketing industry. We love to grow revenue. And the motivation today is those competitor sites are being emailed to us and we're reacting to that. And so other than that, I don't know how to motivate people when that motivation doesn't already exist. Right. So I think that's a wonderful example and it's one that we see all the time right now. If you go to any social media group that is focused on the industry, you'll typically see a post in there that'll say, I received this link from such and such a competitor.com and the prices are insane. How am I going to compete? So in a Geiger environment, how do you counsel your salespeople that are receiving these too good to be true prices from competing sites? 
Is the answer a technological one? Like, hey, we'll create a better website than our competitor? Or is it one that combines creativity to try to rise above the constant price shopping that we see today? It is definitely a mix. And we do face these challenges. And the answers are different depending on the situation. But let's start by admitting that there are some commodity purchases in this industry. There are some people who know the exact pin they want. Mm. They have a long lead time, and they trust the online company because they're paying with their credit card, and if the company doesn't deliver, they'll fight with their credit card company. So some of those deals where the price is too good to be true, you're not going to win unless the person really values your relationship. And for Geiger, we talk about, and people obviously know, but there's some price at which people don't want to use their relationship. They would rather save the 500 bucks or 1000 bucks or whatever their number is. Yeah. So the way we're handling it at Geiger is we are saying you have to have a tool set, and it's our job to provide to our sales partners this tool set. You have to have a tool set that puts you on par with the online player's technology and offerings. Now, that's only the technology piece. There's still the pricing piece, and then there's the relationship. So as long as we are providing, as long as a distributor in this industry has a true online e-commerce site, they then can move into the competing on relationship as well as price. But if you don't have that and the price is out there, so you're now competing where price and technology are a big problem, and you're only competing with relationship, that's a challenge. Because sometimes people want to order at 8 p.m. at night, and they want to use live chat, and you're a small distributor and you don't have live chat, so they're going to order from an online distributor who's still working live chat at 8 p.m. at night. Mm. But assuming you have that, then you get to the relationship, and you have to price your products online to be competitive. And I'll give you a challenge that we face today. We price our products online to be competitive, and some of our sales partners could sell at higher margins than we're pricing the products at online, and it drives them nuts. Mm. And the challenge there is, and we, we talk about this very openly, the challenge there is if you don't price your products at a reasonable margin, you will not even get the phone call or the email because people will go to the other sites online that are offering really cheap prices, too cheap. And if you do price them that way, you're going to give up some margin, but that's the world we live in today. And if people are doing most of the work and research, you can at least look at it and say, well, if I'm not having to invest as much up front, maybe that's a justification for a slightly lower margin. So it's a very complicated piece, and there are some deals where price just matters too much. But relationship matters the most, and that's Geiger's strategy. And even the online companies, and this is a fascinating point, the online companies, they also believe in relationships. Mm. They, in fact, build the relationships after they get that first sale. Mail catalogs, they mail samples, they make phone calls, they put you on an email list. They just work the relationship in a very sophisticated way as opposed to a very personal way. But they absolutely believe in the power of a relationship as well. And that's why sales partners in this industry have to work harder on the relationship because it's that real intimate personal connection that we bring that makes a big difference. That's a great answer. And I actually have a question I'd like to jump on that because you know a lot of distributors in our industry are concerned very concerned about how online companies are completely disrupting their business and making it 
difficult and challenging for them to sell. But I agree with you that they do build relationships. They just do it in a much more technologically advanced way, and they really understand what they're doing. But I'd like to look at it from a different perspective. How do you see technology, instead of disrupting the traditional distributor model, how do you see it complementing and augmenting what traditional distributors can do? That's absolutely the right question. That's the way to be looking at this. Those who continue to look at it as a threat really miss that bill. That's just really wise. And it is having that tool set, whatever it is. Now, the challenge is building that initial tool set can be very expensive. There are great tools from Sage and other companies out there that, that really provide some level of sophistication, and they're going to keep getting better all the time. But of course, you want to have something that's unique. You want to have something that's personal to you. So. Whether it's a, a CRM system that you can buy off the shelf and just use as is that allows you to automatically follow up with clients, that's the pieces I think most salespeople in this industry are missing and is much easier to do as a small player that runs your own one or three-person distributor because you can work off the shelf, use things in a special, unique way, and there are tons of good $20 a month CRM systems that you and other, any small distributor, medium-sized distributor could implement, I could implement, and use effectively. And the big boys can't do it that well because their systems get bigger and bigger and bigger. So I love your question. I would just almost turn your question into a statement. People need to see technology as an enabler, not as a threat. And if you look at those big companies, they spend a ton of money. The online companies spend a ton of money acquiring customers. The cost to pay for a click on the keyword promotional products just keeps going up and up and up. So you could pay $20 for some random person to click to your website. That same person is likely going to click five or six different ads and compare you. At $20 a click, Google just made, let's say, 100 bucks, and that person may not even end up buying from any one of those. You do that multiple times, multiple times, you're paying $500 or $1,000 to acquire a single sale. So the difference is for a traditional distributor is knocking on doors, using relationships. What's happening with the online players, they're investing a ton of money up front, and so they make their money the longer they keep the customer around. That's why they value the relationship so much. Now, that's great stuff. You know, I, the old saying is what people buy from people they know, like, and trust. And, and I think in the digital age, it's morphed into people buy from people in companies they know, like, and trust. Yes. Um, and that's why it's so important to build that relationship. So given that, how do you see technology shaping our industry over the next, let's say, 18 months or two years? And that may be so far out. Who, who's to know? But how do you see technology continuing to shape our industry or distributors? Building off of what you kind of summarized from the last question, the relationship is moving from just the individual to the company, but it's also moving to what your online, I don't even call it, your online reputation. So if you're a small distributor and you don't have a strong online reputation, including your social media presence, and somebody's Googling to find out who to buy from, online, you're not going to get that shot to prove the relationship. And I think it, it's been this way, and I think it's only going to accelerate in the next 18 months to answer this question, that the management of your online reputation as an organization and, and as a person becomes incredibly important. How often you say it, what you say, how you invest in it, that to me 
is probably the most important for this industry over the next 18 months. Now, there's some big picture stuff also going on that I think is really important. And I think in the next 18 months, this group that I'm involved with called Promo Standards that's working on trying to automate and standardize some transfer of data between two distributor and a supplier, and I know Common SKU is very involved in that as well, Mark. That effort is going to make a major difference. You won't feel it in the next 18 months, but it's happening in the next 18 months, and that's setting up what's going to be changing for years to come. It's a great point, and I'll just jump in and certainly applaud the efforts that you and John Norris and a number of other folks have really spent a lot of great time in it, and the, the results that we're certainly seeing from our vantage point has been phenomenal at the outset, so we remain very excited about that. So kudos to you, Dale, for doing that. On that note, I want to go back to May of this year, Dale, when there was a big announcement between Geiger and Sage that there was a, an announcement that Geiger had moved a lot of its search business over to Sage from ESP. Are you able to comment about what that's all about and what kind of impact that's had on your business as it relates to Geiger? Sure. You know, it's a little early to say what kind of impact it, it's going to have. What it's really about is that some of our sales partners liked and preferred Sage. And up until May of this year, we had only offered one product to our sales partners if they wanted to work within the Geiger structure where we provided our preferred vendor information and pricing and such. Right. And that made sense probably 10 years ago or so when, when that agreement was originally made. Sage has done a really great job with their product and always have. You go all the way back to 1990, it's very impressive what the Natinskys have done. And especially over the past several years, they've done so well that sales partners felt that the lack of choice wasn't good for them. And Geiger, like any good business, is going to listen to our salespeople and our customers. And we said, we need to make this available. And we really like the product and we still like ESP as well. And when I look at technology, just to back up for a second, you know, having the choice is such a beautiful thing. So, Mark, you may prefer Sage, and Bill, you may prefer ESP. They both do a great job. It's how you use it that makes it the right tool for you. And that's the story behind why Geiger moved a lot of our business to Sage. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's a wise decision. I mean, we have certainly had a lot of experience with both search engines. And as you say, both products are excellent. And I feel in the industry today, if you're a service provider or even if you're a distributorship, I think that by giving choice, I mean, hey, you've even got Distributor Central in there, which is a great free option. Right. I think the employers or the service providers that are creating these agnostic environments that plug into multiple systems are the winners. And I think that you're talking about that to some extent with promo standards in terms of just keeping everything as open as possible letting the user decide. I, I, I just think that's a very modern and appropriate way to do things. Absolutely. It does come at a little bit of a cost in terms of Sage and ESP, though, because you now have a group of people doing things in one tool and then a group doing another tool. So in an ideal world, it's great if you can have 100% standardization. So I would love if we had 100% of our business in one place or the other, and maybe that will happen over time as one product gets that much better than the others but you end up having training and support. Fortunately, both Sage and ASI offer pretty good training and support, but I'm with you. The options to do what you need to do as a business outweighs that drawback. Right. I'm going to ask one other question that I've been dying to ask you for some time. 
the supplier distributor and client relationship we know that there are hard and fast rules within the industry that have been created and governed largely by ASI and PPAI and for many of us that have been in the business for well each of us have been in this business for roughly 20 years each and it's all I've ever known Dale is that a good thing is that the kind of thing that makes this industry better or is it the kind of thing that we'll look back at in 10 years when Zazzle or Teespring or some outsider company comes in to eat our lunch? Is it the kind of thing we'll look back at and say, why did we ever have that silly distributor supplier end user construct? I actually think it is a very good thing. I think there is a lot of improvement needed in it, but I think it makes complete sense have a large number, maybe not as large, but maybe it's larger, but a large number of suppliers who specialize in an area and a large number of distributors for them to sell to and really get out and canvas the world. I think our industry is stronger because of it. Now, there's a lot of inefficiency, so don't get me wrong. If we don't change some structural things and improve, then having a distributor-supplier relationship and buyer relationship is going to create too much opportunity for somebody to be cut out completely. Mm. But the complexity for now of what we do as an industry, in particular what distributors have to understand across a wide range of products, and having to have relationships with buyers and understand their needs and get those orders properly configured really validates why there needs to be a distributor. Mm. And the suppliers specialize on that back-end stuff in their products and their systems. And if a supplier were to try to sell direct with the relationships the way they are today, it would be very challenging. As the world moves more and more online, could I see a very large supplier create an online distributor and survive and thrive? Yes. Or let me say that differently. Could I see an online distributor create a supplier to fill its all its own products? Mm. Yes. But there will always be a need for products that they don't sell enough of that they'll have to lean on someone else. And so there will always, I think, be a distributor-supplier in buyer relationship. As distributors, the three of us have to do, or at least the two of us have to do what we need to do to make sure we're adding value in that. Mm -hmm. I think it is something to watch, but I don't think in the next 20 years the model goes away unless we don't make it more efficient. Right. One really quick thing to follow up on that, and I turn it over to Bill, our mutual good friend Danny Rosen talks about this this doomsday scenario. It's sort of this fictitious doomsday scenario, and he calls it Supplier Monday or Supplier Tuesday. I forget what day of the week it is, but the whole idea is that he wakes up and he goes online and he gets an email that says, his biggest supplier or maybe the biggest supplier in the entire industry has decided to sell direct. So we always like to have these conversations of like, well, what would brand fuel or what would right sleeve do or what would such and such a distributor do if your biggest supplier overnight became your biggest competitor? And so I'll ask that question of you, Dale, that if you took your biggest vendor at Geiger and they decided to go compete against you head on, in a brazen, wanton fashion, what would Geiger do about that? The first thing we would do is we'd stop buying anything from that supplier, right? <laughs> okay. And, and so, so would a lot of other people, and that's 
one of the reasons why that scenario is unlikely for a large supplier. Yep. For a, you know, a reasonable size, yes, because there will be a tipping point where that scenario makes more sense for some suppliers. But the larger the suppliers are, the less that scenario makes sense. I, I really think the more likely scenario is a distributor setting themselves up as a supplier. But if you look back at the direct houses of you know, the, the last century, they have moved more towards the distribution model because it made more sense. But yeah. let's, let's, keep going. let's keep going because the world is changing and you know, sometimes what's old is new again. So we'd first stop buying from them and then we'd look at the alternatives. And what that supplier will find is that the cost of acquiring those customers, even if their prices are now selling to the buyer at the same price they would have sold to us, their operating costs are going to go up through the roof because of the value the distributor provides. Yep. Now, can they do it? Yeah. But the margin is all of a sudden going to say, wait, we can't sell this at a margin of 25 or 35 points or whatever their margin is today. We have to sell it at 55 points. And now all of a sudden, as a distributor, we're closer to what we can compete with using a different provider. Yeah. So as long as distributors add value in the chain and at least enough or hopefully more than what a supplier can do without having them, it's great. And if you're a supplier, you've got a free sales force. You only pay 100% commission. You only pay if they do a job. Yeah, great point. Awesome. Awesome stuff. So I have a couple just quick kind of lightning round questions, to quote Mr. Rosen, if you're prepared for that, Dale. Sure. First one is, when you are running, do you prefer running shorts, jorts, or shorty shorts? Because you're a big runner. I think everybody would really like to know what your preferred attire is when you're running. Well, there is a blog out there with me wearing a pair of jorts, but I will admit to having to buy those specifically for the blog. I am definitely a running shorts guy. There's a lot of chafing if you run in jorts, so let's go with running shorts. <laughs> I, I bet you're wearing jorts right now. I think you are. <laughs> I want to know how many pair of jorts you own, because I, I, I am highly suspect that those jorts were purchased solely for a blog post. Well... I'm only going to admit to owning one pair from that blog post. That's all you're going to get out of me today. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. You have a great presence on social media. Your, your clout score, I think, is around 63 or 64, very high. But one thing that strikes me is you took kind of a cleanse from social media on, on a vacation recently. How did that shift your perspective in the role that social media plays in your both personal and professional life? It's a great question, and, and it actually would have been, if I was smart, I would have used that as an example earlier when you asked about how technology can enhance relationships. It a, occurred to me as I'm on this trip with my family and my extended family, we're, we're in Georgia with my sister and brother-in-law and my dad, and we're all having a great time, and they're posting all this stuff to social media, sharing it with their friends, and there's comments, and my wife's on it, and you know, it's not, it's not in the way. It's not like they're doing that in absence of talking to each other. It's a moment here and a moment there. And I'm missing out on this whole extended enjoyment. I mean, think about why we take pictures to begin with. And I always hated when people would sit down with me and make me flip through their photo album at their house and look at my grandkids and look at this and look at that because that's, that's a lot to sit through. But a little bit here and there is great. So I found on that social media has, and I've always believed this, but it was more true than I realized, Social media enhanced my relationships. I, I did find that not craving the interaction every morning of reading the news online, which I'm a big reader of newser.com, and playing my Scrabble game and other electronic distractions was very healthy for me. But actually getting rid of social media, in particular Facebook for me, 
turned out to take away from my relationships. So I'll probably do another one in the future again, just so that I can appreciate it. But I, I really love the value of how social media enhances, not replaces relationships. That's a great, great answer. Last one, and then I'm going to throw it back to uh, Dr. Graham here. What is your preferred social media platform? Facebook, Twitter, what, what comments do you, what, what is your preferred social media platform, both personally and then professionally? I definitely, far and away, prefer Facebook, but it's largely because of that's where my connections and network is. And I'm, I'm very happy to genuinely connect with people, employees, colleagues, friends, and some, and all of the above in many cases. Um, it, it's just Facebook to me does that better right now than anyone else. As you know, I'm on most of them. I spend a, a reasonable amount of time on Twitter as well. I'm not as engaged on Twitter, but I learn so much on Twitter. And what I love about Twitter is the ability to connect with anyone People who are engaged on Twitter are really engaged. So uh, it's whether it's an author that I've read, whether it's a story that I've read, there's ways to connect with people through Twitter that just aren't capable on Facebook. Or they are, but it's Facebook's so much more personal. So for two very different reasons, and fortunately in this industry, Facebook is also a business tool because so many of us are so open with our personal life in Facebook in this industry. So I get to do both there. Where on Twitter in particular, when I'm engaging with the broader world, I find that very valuable. Awesome. Dale, I want to shift gears and ask you a question, a career question in terms of your, your growth. And I want to go back to your time at ASI where you had done very, very well and had grown throughout the organization to a very senior role and then moved on from ASI. I want to know what you learned from that time of your life in terms of moving away from ASI and then ultimately to a non-industry organization and then ultimately back to Geiger. What did you learn in, in your post-ASI days? Well, I had a, a really great and challenging experience for the year that, in, that I left the industry. It was with a private equity firm and managed to prep the company for sale and do so successfully, which was great. You know, private equity was a very good learning experience, so I'll just leave it at, at that. Some good and some bad from that. And then joining Geiger has just been great because of the, the Geiger family and the fact that the culture was ready for improvement, even though it's a great culture. So I don't want to say that, like, you know, came in and I loved everything the way it was. If anything, because of how comfortable I am in the culture, but also using my oversized ambitions that you brought up, which I love. Managing to work within the culture and still driving things forward has been very fun. To, I don't know if this is where you were going, but to wrap it all up, what have I learned from going from a senior business overall, including technology, both at ASI and at PennySaver, and then moving into a CIO role? The CIO role is still very business-oriented, but on a personal level, if there's one thing I know, I miss the joy and satisfaction of personally being accountable for growing revenue. I'm involved. I'm accountable for different things. I love the overall aspect of moving things around and figuring it. And I still get to do that as a CIO, but it's just not the same as when you're running your own divisions. So I suppose that's a learning experience from having that opportunity both at ASI and at PennySaver. But there's also a nice thing about not having that. The, the stress is still very high, but it's a different stress. 
you know, if you if you're closing a million dollar deal and it doesn't happen, that's not that's not a fun day. No, it is not a fun day. <laughs> I mean, Bill, you have those experiences all the time. You're closing million dollar deals like daily. So you know, for you, it's actually it's actually getting to the point where it's about every forty five minutes. So. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. That's why you're so good at what you do, teaching the rest of us how to close million dollar deals, Bill. That's there that, you go. That's there you true. go. Dale, I think as we wind this down, first of all, I'm always amazed by how quickly these podcasts go, and I find get very immersed in the conversation. So thank you for that. But we always like to allow our guests the final word, the last word. Is there something, Dale, you can say in terms of how people can learn more about you and how to connect with you if they're not already connected with you or if there is a message that you want to impart upon people? Now is the time to do it. Okay. I suppose I'll continue building off that last little line of questioning and, and then talk about how people can connect with me. The interesting thing I think people who know me well know is that despite the fact that I fully embrace and even exploit the fact that I'm an IT guy, I hate being known as the IT guy hmm. because I'm a business guy who exploits IT. But the beauty of it is we need the IT leadership, and I'm filling that void. And if I were just another business guy, I would be less interesting. I would have less to add because there's so many smart business people. But the challenge, of course, is when you look at an IT leader, even if you respect their business acumen, you look at them as an IT person first. So something people close to me know is I hate being the IT guy. Mm. In terms of how to connect with me, Using IT is a good way to do so. <laughs> um, LinkedIn is my favorite for people that I don't know really well, as well as Twitter. But I pretty much connect with in this industry with anybody on Facebook. And just as an aside, I tag people if I don't know them well, but they appear to be in the industry, and list them as an industry contact. So that if I am going to post something that either is personal or controversial, I can do so just to my close, closest friends that I know beyond the industry. Right. But um, I'm on LinkedIn. That's the easiest way, linkedin.com slash in slash Dale Denham. And I'm also on Twitter, at Dale Denham. So either one of those two ways is the easiest way to get a hold of me. And uh, I agree with you. The time has gone by really fast, and I've enjoyed it. Uh, and you know, hopefully in a couple of years I'll be interesting enough, and we'll do so again. <laughs> Well, Dale, <laughs> this has been most interesting, but thank you so much. And uh, on behalf of the whole Promo Kitchen community, we are deeply honored to have spent the last hour with you. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. See you next time.